Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Real Drug Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by Connection Based Living. Connection Based Living is our outpatient treatment program that we run uh, and basically what we do is help people to transform out of addictive patterns without having to check into rehab, without having to give up work, study and everyday life. Um, so if that sounds of interest to you and you've wanted to make some changes to addictive patterns without having to check yourself into rehab, we might be able to help. Um, you can visit www.connectionbasedliving.com.au, which will be located in the show notes. That's www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. Um, and yeah, send us an email, book in a chat, um, just give us a call and you know we'll see how we can help and point you in the right direction for something that's right for you. Um, so really awesome show today. This was the first one that I recorded being back um, from annual leave. Um, this was done with Greg Denham. Uh, Greg has an extensive history um, working at the forefront of trying to get some positive changes to drug policy um, and improve drug policy for for the community for for people you know experience drug experiencing drug and alcohol issues um, and everybody else in the space. It was a super interesting chat about you know some of the pros and cons from someone that's been at the forefront of uh, decriminalization, legalization, you know all these interesting conversations and from someone that was at the forefront of helping, to set up the injecting rooms and explaining the context around that um, and all those sorts of things. So really in interesting chat. Um, hope you get a lot out of it. Leave us some feedback. Um, give us a couple of five-star reviews so we can progress up the algorithms. Um, and I'll shut up and let's get into the show. Peace. Okay. Um, in three, two, one. Boom. Welcome back, everybody, to Real Drug Talk. Now, uh, straight off the top, um, I'm a bit rusty. It's been it's been a couple of weeks since we released the show. Uh, I think I explained on on some of my other podcasts that um, we we tried to prepare. We Greg, we tried to prepare for the moment when I was gonna have the baby, as we were talking about off um before we started recording, you have all these ideas about what's going to happen. And then it doesn't quite happen like that. And I tried to record a bunch of podcasts, um, before, before my son was born. And then he was, he was late and, uh, all the podcasts got released and then I had no, no backups and then he was born. And then yeah, first month of a parent and yeah, nothing's gone to plan, which has just been magic. Um, but we're a bit behind on the podcast anyway. So this is the first one back for quite a few weeks. Um, but I'm excited because it's one that I've wanted to have for ages. So uh, on today's show, we've got Greg Denham. Is that right? I've said that correctly. That's right. Yes, perfect. Yeah, perfect. I have a habit of butchering people's names, so I'm glad I got that right. Um, and I'm excited to have this conversation because it's a topical issue. We're going to talk um, a fair bit about uh, drug policy um, and, you know, some, I guess you could call them, controversial topics at the moment, particularly in Melbourne around, you know, legalization, decriminalization, drug law reform, all that sort of stuff, which uh, Greg is an expert in and his whole career has been in and around that space. And I'm really interested to chat to him because we first met, I can't remember so bad. I think it was like a doctor's, um, was it like a doctor's conference or something that we first met at where you were moderating on students, stage? I think at University of Melbourne, it was a forum that they were having and uh yeah we spoke on a panel there was you me fiona Patton, 
Was there one other person? Or was that it? There was there was one other person. There was a lady from I think it was Harm Reduction Victoria. Um, and and I actually see her name a lot on papers Steph, and stuff. So, Steph? Uh, Steph, it was Steph. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, that that was an interesting conversation. And ever since then, we've kind of gone back and forth with some interesting comments and stuff on LinkedIn. So, um, I'm excited to have the chat, but. Maybe, maybe um, instead of me butchering it, do you want to just tell everyone, you know, I know it's always a bit of a weird thing, but, you know, a brief outline of kind of what your career has been about for the past 30 plus years? <laughs> well, um, because I'm getting really old, Jack, uh, this could take longer than you anticipate. But um, <laughs> basically, so I left uh, school, uh, went to uni, did some teaching for a while and then left and then joined Victoria Police and spent 15 years in Victoria Police. Then went to Queensland, was in the police service, came back and then spent five years as a public servant with Victoria Police. Um, what were you doing for the police? That's interesting. I didn't know that. You didn't know I was in the police? No, no. I thought you knew. I thought I said I was in the police. Oh, okay. No, there you go. Different perspective on things. It's great. Um, well, I was an operational police officer, and then I um, did all the all of the investigation stuff, and then worked in the crime prevention area for quite a while. Did a lot of work on um, drug education in schools. Yep. Wow. Um, so I know the area quite well, and then um, yeah, I went to Queensland, came back, then had five years in the drug and alcohol strategy unit with Victoria Police, teaching police about drug harm minimisation. So. Yep. Um, so that was, a, that was an interesting time right after the Pennington report in the mid-90s when mm -hmm. there was an issue with heroin in Melbourne. So, um, yeah, really enjoyed it. You know, um, I think I achieved quite a lot. Um, left, went into the drug treatment area doing education research. And then um, just one of those lucky breaks where someone said to me, would you be interested in, in living and work, working overseas? And wow. uh, so the Burnett Institute, said to me, we want a police advisor in Southeast Asia um, and then Asia and then Africa. So I spent five years uh, living and working mostly in Vietnam, China, um, Myanmar, spent a bit of time in Africa. Um, so wow. just made, made, mostly talking to police about harm reduction. So, you know, most people would know that we've had this national policy for 30 years now around harm minimization. So mm -hmm. we've got these three components, which is supply reduction, demand reduction and harm reduction. So we have had this policy, which is supposed to be a balanced approach, which looks at ways in which we can limit access or reduce the supply of drugs and that includes alcohol, tobacco, prescribed drugs, so regulation, control, etc. Demand reduction, which is education and treatment. And then there's harm reduction, which is the, it's, I always describe it as the poor relation because it's there because I think policymakers felt that they needed to have something which focuses around reducing risk and problem prevention, yeah. particularly given the success of um, our campaign against HIV AIDS. Um, yeah. You know the condom distribution, the needle and syringe program. So, um, but of course, every time there's a push around harm reduction, particularly things like injecting rooms and pill testing, that type of stuff, you know, we get this pushback. So, um, so I, I went over to Southeast Asia and was an advisor on several um, projects which sought um, 
basically sought to um, um, introduce and expand needle and syringe programs in places where at least half of the new HIV infections were from people sharing injecting equipment. So, um, yeah. so they wanted police to be on board. So they chose me as an ex-police officer to really advocate and work with the local police around why they should support needle and syringe programs. So wow. uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a really tough time. It was really challenging from a number of levels. Um, very conservative, um, re a real lack of knowledge around HIV, um, some pretty entrenched views, some harsh views, some brutal views around people who use drugs. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I did that for quite a while. And then, um, yeah, uh, like you I'd, I'd had my second child and thought, well, you know, it's time to sort of, you know, settle down and, and look at something locally. Um, and in 2010, I was fortunate to be appointed as the executive officer for the Arrow Drug and Health Forum. And um, the forum had for quite a while advocated for an injecting room in North Richmond. Yeah, and uh, it has kind of reached a stalemate, and um, but we knew there was a strong case for it. So I spent the best part of nine years doing other things, but uh, mostly looking at way, a way in which we could get the injecting room up and running. So we had some great wins apart from the injecting room. We we didn't have naloxone in Victoria at that stage, which uh, is amazing, isn't it? I know it's <laughs> astonishing. I still. You know, when someone told me that there was a paper presented at the Harm Reduction Conference in Melbourne in 1992 mm -hmm. about the use of naloxone um, to reverse overdoses and it was never adopted. And we, we were one of the last states to actually do it. I just find, found that astonishing. I just found it, I just couldn't believe it. So um, we've gone through a really, I guess, a dark, a dark period during the 2000s with drug policy, we, we really didn't have anything happen mm. during that time. When, you know, John Howard basically declared that, you know, um, the heroin prescribing trial in Canberra wouldn't go ahead when the injecting room in Sydney was opened and mm. then, you know, the so-called heroin drought kicked in and the Victorian state government um, basically stopped the introduction of injecting rooms in Victoria um, in the early 2000s, it, mm. it just it just died. Like, you know, every, everything kind of fell fell apart. And uh, and it was in 2010 that you know the there was starting to uh, I guess be a recognition that we had had a really uh, really difficult decade in terms of drug policy reform. There was lots of conversation starting around what was happening in Portugal. Um, uh, you know, there was there was overdoses starting to happen and, and public injecting starting to happen. And, you know, there was this kind of push happening internationally around drug policy reform. So I, I thought, well, this is it. You know, we've, we've got to get on this, on this bandwagon. Mm. We've, got to, we've got to jump on this because, you know, um, cannabis law reform was happening in the United States. There was stuff happening everywhere. And I said, we've, we're falling behind. You know, we... we we are once we were we were once the leaders. Now uh, we're we're not even the followers. We were we were doing nothing. So <laughs> I think okay, that's it. Um, and I think one of the turning points was when a guy called Ethan Nadelman from um, the Drug Policy Alliance in the states came out to Australia and spoke at the Melbourne Town Hall with 120 people there, 
um, and basically spoke for an hour about what was happening internationally and then looked at the audience and said, Australia's doing nothing. You know, I think a few people realised then it sunk in that, you know, we need to do something. We, we need to get, you know, um, get ourselves into gear and, and start to push, you know, drug policy reform. So I did that for nine years. And I, um, you know, thought it was probably the most rewarding time of my whole, you know, um, working life. Yeah. So interesting. What a, what a uh, you know, a wide ranging experience. So can I ask just like, there's lots of stuff that I want to get into there, but just going right back, because um, I didn't know that. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Take us back to your psychology. Why did you want to become a police officer? Look, that's a good question. Um, my grandfather was a London Bobby. I, I actually was born in England. I came out um, yep. on a boat a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had a cousin who was in, in the police force, my brother's in the police force. So there was a bit of a family tradition, history around that stuff. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, I watched Dead Cars and Softly, Softly as a kid and, you know, um, <laughs> the bill. Um, but no, I just, I think I just identified with the whole kind of doing good to people, you know, providing a service, helping people. Um, you know, I was never really into locking up the bad guys. I never had that kind of uh, vigor or, um, you know, strong drive. It was more about assisting people and helping people out and mm. dealing with people in crisis. So, um, so when I sort of did a little bit of teaching and it really wasn't working for me, I joined Victoria Police and, um, you know, and, and you go through this kind of indoctrination process and, you know, you come out at the end of the training, not necessarily the way in which you thought you were going to come out, but right. certainly as part of an organisation which has a particular view about, you know, policing and what the priorities are and how you get rewarded and, and credibility and peer recognition. So I kind of sort of fell into that sort of mould um, but after eight or nine years, it just wasn't happening for me. You know, like yeah. I thought, well, you know, I've got to get out. This isn't, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So, and then someone threw me a lifeline. I, I knew a senior police officer who said, look, the state government wants to set up a project where they, they want um, police to go into schools to talk about drug education and being a good citizen. And the, the, um, the commission at the time, Cal Glare was right behind it and, you know, there were people in Labor Party and politics who were right behind it. And so I said, look, you know, give my, my policing, my, sorry, my teaching background um, and policing background, I, I'm in. So I, I started in that and I really, really enjoyed that and uh, worked on that. We got all the police in the schools and it worked out. I reckon it was a great program. And uh, I then got into the youth area working with young people and, you know, trying to get, a, I guess, a, an understanding amongst police about youth and uh because of course when you join victoria police or any police force you immediately forget what you were like as a kid um <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah so um so and, and look that that was you know what i what i thought was you know um going to be you know the, the rest of my career but again after about seven or eight years um you know and i actually got to senior sergeant so i was quite senior and uh Wow. You know, I felt at that stage that, you know, it, it just wasn't happening for me anymore. I've always been the sort of person that likes to work on something for a while. And then if I start to feel that I've done my job or I, it just isn't working out, I move on. So, yeah. 
So um, I went to Queensland, um, joined up there, did the sort of police work in school stuff for a couple of years and came back. But the drug stuff has always been in the back of my mind. The drug policy stuff, even when I was doing my university studies, you know, <laughs> like over, um, you know, a decade earlier, um, nearly two decades earlier, it always stuck in my mind why we have the drug policies that we do. Why, why do we have this particular approach towards certain drugs? And I'd learned a bit, as I said, um, working with great organisations like the Australian Drug Foundation and you know, a lot of other people that were doing good work around drug education in schools. And I started to hear about harmonisation. I started to you know, think a bit more about it. And you know, I could never work out why we kind of had this, these you know, s- strong sort of um, sanctions and, and, you know, this stigma, discrimination and, uh, you know, marginalisation of people that use drugs other than the legal ones. And it never made sense to me because the more I studied, the, the more I thought, well, hang on, this doesn't make sense. You know, like, you know, all of the harms that tobacco and alcohol causes, yet we make certain other substances illegal um, mm. when the risks are lower, in fact. So I, you know, anyway, so... I started to think, okay, I, I want to get involved in this. So that led me to going back to Victoria Police, trying to develop or change police attitudes around drugs. Um, and then at the five Do you reckon years, that's been successful over the years? Like, do you, do you uh, feel the attitudes have changed? Look, I don't know. It, 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 it's had its ups and downs. I think a lot yeah. of that sort of change came about from about 94, 95 onwards when that, there was a significant report by uh, Professor David Pennington, who looked at drugs, the, the impact of drugs in Victoria, particularly heroin, mm. you know, and the impact that that was having. And um, I think uh, as much as it went against the grain for a lot of police, I think they recognised that what they were doing wasn't working, you know, that we had a significant issue with heroin. So mm. there were, you know, uh, I think nearly 100 recommendations from that report, from injecting rooms to decriminalising cannabis to you know, a whole range of stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of it uh, didn't get up, unfortunately. Some some of it did, like I was involved with setting up the police drug diversion programs and the cannabis cautioning program. And, and uh, you know, so, so there was um, some change, but, you mm-hmm. know, momentum swings and, and often policing attitudes and policing responses reflects what the government of the day is saying. So... Mm-hmm. If the government, in the end, police are public servants. So if the government of the day says we will introduce a policy around drugs or whatever, then police are required to follow that that policy. It's not that straightforward, obviously. It's it's far more complicated than that. Um, yeah. There, there, there is always going to be resistance from police around drug policy reform because they uh, invariably see um, the worst outcomes from um, drug drug misuse, um, from from yeah, pe- particularly people who they see whose lives have been torn apart, and and the lives of other people that they impact on, um, you know, torn apart and affected. And police often will have those more harsh views around drugs, and will resist drug policy reform. And and that's yeah, common. no matter where you go. As I said, I've been very fortunate to travel. Not only in, in that work in Southeast Asia and low to middle income countries, but also, you know, I've travelled in Europe and the United States 
and policing attitudes towards drugs are you know they're, they're pretty much consistent no matter where you go mm. so yeah. it's interesting that point about you know um and like yeah unfortunately police have to deal with that pointy end mm. like the you know and, the, and they would be dealing with the extreme mm. criminality and the dealing of it and you know all this different stuff that goes along with that and uh yeah the really messed up situations that they get called out to and things like that and it's it's interesting because i've found after you know you as you mentioned like you went through kind of a indoctrination process i I almost feel like that's what happened to me in almost like the recovery community you know it's just my opinion and it's just kind of been in a bit of a awakening over the last couple of years but because i was in that place or got to that place myself where i was at the very pointy end of like addiction um and then working in frontline treatment services and you know and it was all just dealing with like the very destructive ends of drugs you know and that was for a long time that was my world view of the whole thing and it was really hard to sort of unravel that and come out of it like how how do you actually go about broaching that with police or or culture as a whole or society politicians all that sort of stuff how do you how do you try and shift their perspective around it yeah look that's a good question um i think most people that i've spoken with whether they're police politicians um uh, or, or or others that you know that you run into uh, will say that the system that we've got or what we're doing isn't working. I think yeah. most people agree about that. However, I think um, many are unsure about what the next steps might be and they're mm-hmm. worried about what the outcomes from the, those next steps will be. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was advocating for the injecting room in North Richmond, I was fortunate to have quite a number of meetings with politicians and police. Um, and, and many would say and acknowledge that, you know, what, 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 the, the approach that we were, we've adopted isn't working, but um, yeah. you know they. I think it, it takes a brave person, um, whether you're a serving police officer or a politician, to come out and say, you know, the 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 drug war has 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 failed, and we need to take a completely different approach. We don't have we don't have have the space or the the opportunity <clears throat> or, or the it's not so much willingness. I think I think there's that security around what we're doing, which politicians know um, is is a safe place for them at the moment. Because um, you know, if they do come out and, and you know say that what's working, what's what's what we're doing isn't working, then um, they they run a huge risk. You know, they're likely to be. Um, you know, crucified by the media uh, and, you know, labelled um, as radicals. And, uh, you know, no uh, no politician wants that. The, the bravest, and I think that works for both sides. I don't, I'm not playing a political line here, um, either mm. left or right. I think that works for both sides. My my conversations with both sides of politics is, is that it's, it, it, it's too sensitive an issue um, to be able to come out and make those kind of statements, so I think most politicians would would be happy to um, acknowledge that things need to change, but they would want the the community to feel comfortable with um, with change um, at a pace that the politicians would also feel comfortable with as well. So 
Um, I, I think that there has been change over the last few years. We've seen the North Richmond injecting room. Um, we've seen, um, you know, uh, moves to have another one in, in introduced into the um, CBD. Yeah. Um, and I think too that, um, you know, with the current um, cannabis um, inquiry that we'll see some changes there. We've seen medical cannabis introduced. So things mm. are happening slowly. Um, I think we'll see pill testing uh, when we finally get, um, you know, music and dance festivals up, up and running again. I think that will be introduced. So, and that's mm. taken quite a bit of time. So, you know, it, it's a case, I think, of acknowledging that um, politicians um, will will take their time to make a decision and ensure that, you know, almost like all the boxes are ticked before they make that decision to go ahead with something. Because in the end, it's it's a political decision in which they will make when they feel that they won't lose votes yeah. um, or, or um, <clears throat> be labelled um, in a particular way, which will, will make things very, very difficult for them. Because one thing you don't want politicians to do is to say no to something like if they say no publicly about something then it's very difficult for them to to turn you know to turn around and say yes mm. um so it is about putting in that you know that that time though those hard yards getting to the stage where they're comfortable with making a decision in your favor but it, it just takes time you know we've got to remember and someone reminded me of this that we, we, we're dealing with 100 years of almost drug prohibition. We talk about the war on drugs going back to Richard Nixon and, and his statement about total war against drug abuse in 1971. But, you know, the actual war on drugs started back, you know, back at the beginning of last century. Mm. So um, it's over 100 years since the Harrison Act was introduced in the United States in 1914, which outlawed, you know, the treatment of people for um, with drug addiction. So, you mm. know, we, we, we've got a long way to go yet before the community is, is educated enough and feels comfortable enough and knowledgeable enough for um, politicians to make decisions about changing our, our current approach towards drugs. Given, given as I said, the, you know, the, the way in which the media responds to drug issues, we only just, just have to look at the way in which the Herald Sun has responded to the proposal to um, introduce <laughs> or set up a new injecting room in the city. And, and, you know, it's just been an absolute feeding frenzy. And, and, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it's just, you know, just appalling. But, you know, that's the way they operate. You know, it's divide and conquer, polarise the community, create a moral panic, um, all that stuff which we know, you know, um, makes people feel uncomfortable and makes people pick up that newspaper and buy it and, or read that headline. So we've still got a fair bit, to, still, still got a fair way to go yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's interesting. So... There's so much that I want to talk to you about. I think the first one that um, is is interesting is the if we I, I want to talk about your experience overseas as well because I think that's interesting for people just to kind of get the perspective on it as well. And I was talking to someone about it the other day. Is like you know because I've I I get frustrated with bureaucracy like it fucking drives me insane. You know what I mean? Like if I'm in my limited experience being involved in like government committees and stuff is that you have a conversation and then you're having the same conversation three years later and you just feel like banging your head against the wall. Yeah. Um, but then like people often remind me, you know, 
well, I went overseas and we did this, you know, drug conference and they're, you know, still talking about not executing people for using drugs or whatever. Absolutely. And you go, fucking hell. You know, so. it's, it's the reality. Uh, you know, I lived and worked in um, Vietnam for two and a half years and, you know, they, they have a pretty brutal approach towards people who use drugs and it's yep. totally corrupt. You know, yep. Cambodia, the police there are totally corrupt. They run the drug market. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you're dealing with people who, you know, police who, um, you know, if they find someone or know someone that's using drugs, they extort money out of them, they extort drugs out of them, they sell them drugs. If they don't pay their, you know, their um, bribe, they get put into a detention centre. Their families, uh, you know, blackmailed and extorted and brutalised. Mm. Um, you know, it's just horrible. It's appalling. Uh so, you know, when we talk about, you know, um, drug policy, have a conversation about drug policy reform here and get frustrated because we can't make any progress, we do have to realise that, you know, we have a, <laughs> a very, very different system and a, and a very good system in many respects. I'd like it to be more open. I'd like us to have more avenues and more forums for conversations about drug policy. I think that's the one thing which I've noticed over the last probably four to five years that we don't seem to have the opportunities we've had in the past to have those open conversations. It's much harder to engage government now around yeah. drug policy reform. You've got to be, you know, in a position. And, it, and that's why I was so fortunate to be the executive officer for the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, because I was in that position. And so it's almost like you've got to, you've got to have some status. You've got to have some skin in the game already. Mm. Um, at, which which usually means you're towing some kind of political line. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. But you're also funded by the government. You're also, you know, you, your service, your agency gets government funding. So, yeah, you know, you don't want to bite the hands that feeds it. So, you know, you, you're really in a difficult situation. So you've got to do things really comfortably and respectfully and, you know, um, behind closed doors and, you know, willing to... to bide your time and then of course you get what I used to call the the pinball I used to get pinballed all the time so you know you go in with you know your your agenda or your meeting or your your ideas and your you know your story and then you go through it all and then you get bounced to someone else you know have you spoken to the police about this or you know have you spoken to the health department about this so it's really important that you know you get faith groups on side and uh <laughs> you know, um, you know, all of this stuff, you know, well, you know, we'll talk about in the party room, but, you know, it, it depends on how much opposition we get to this. If we get opposition, we'll, you know, and then we've got to think about the, um, you know, the cross benches, you know, the cross benches are very important. You can spend your whole time going around talking to people who will invariably tell you to talk to someone else. Or then, you know, or um, then they'll say it's, uh, oh, that's, that's probably not a state issue. That's probably a federal yeah. issue and then vice versa, you know. That, yeah, that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. So it's all too close to an election or it's, yeah, look, I've heard all of the excuses. Uh, and looking in the end, they'll make a decision which best suits them politically. I am I firmly believe that, that you won't get a decision until it, it's absolutely in their benefit mm. um, to make that decision. So, um, and look, there's, 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 there's some benefits to it. Like, you know, there, there's certainly, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there's strong competition for, 
you know, certain um, seats and certain, you know, in terms of particularly inner city seats and that type of thing. So, you know, they, they have to be on their toes as well. You know, they can't be complacent. They can't drop the ball um, because, you know, there, there's plenty of other groups out there, other political parties out there that are willing to pick it up and, and can give them a hard time and cause them some grief around that stuff. So, you know, it's um, setting the agenda and knowing how to set the agenda and as, as you know, compared to other political parties is, is really important. That's what they really do look into that quite seriously. Yeah. And it's great. It's uh it's just great to hear the experience because it's actually funny. Like there's like you said, there's so many people just through their personal experience, like me, or um just interested in the area or family members or whatever it would be to yeah, have their say on alcohol and drug issues. It's probably one of the number one questions I get yeah. is well, how do I actually impact this? And it's just it's awesome to it's awesome to hear mm-hmm. the the experience and because that's the reality that i've found as well you have to it's not in a bad way but you have to just kind of think about the opportunities that are kind of going at the time and how you can ride the wave and tie it into your narrative to (laughs) sounds terrible but that's 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 the truth you're you're right it's true you just gotta look for those avenues jack you've got to find ways to have some impact um you know my um my in-laws live um, down the coast and they, um, they've got a house in a seat that's held by the federal Liberals. And, uh, yeah. you know, um, they had no problems at all writing a letter um, to the local member, local Liberal federal member, about their disgust about the fact that, you know, that family was held in detention in Western Australia. Yeah. You know, and they yeah. got all their friends to do it as well. Um, <laughs> and, and that does have some impact. 100%. You know, once, once politicians, you know, my my um, in-laws are quite conservative, but you know, um, and and that that's how it works. You know, you you've got to look at every avenue, every opportunity, and you've got to get, um, you've got to get build a momentum, uh, you know, uh, mm. uh, around change, uh, and it does require that our biggest our biggest challenges amongst ourselves. You know, yeah. our biggest. You know, Ethan Adelman said that back in 2010 when he spoke at the Melbourne Town Hall. He said, uh, you know, the biggest challenge isn't out there. The biggest challenge is in here with us. You know, how do you get all of the different people, parties, different views, not parties, I mean political parties, I mean, you know, different diff- different people involved in drug policy reform. How do, yep. you, how do you get them together? How do you work, get them, you know, w- working together as, you know, um, a group? Mm. to to push drug policy reform because we do tend to work um separately you know we we you know people seem to find um that they you know that they want to protect their territory when it comes to this sort of stuff so it's weird isn't it, it is oh, it's, it is. it's one yeah. of the biggest it's one of the biggest frustrations that i've had with the public sector I suppose for the very reason that you detailed just before is everybody's getting the limited funding from the government and they've all got their piece of the pie and yeah, they're all like, no one wants to like upset anyone else or, you know, which I get, I understand it, but it's frustrating because everyone just, you know, it doesn't help or not all the time, but often we don't help each other and things don't progress forward. I, I yeah, couldn't agree yeah. more. <laughs> I, I, I think, look, I, you're absolutely right. I, I, 
think it's probably more challenging today. I, I worry that after 10 years that the momentum may be swinging back the other way again, that we're, right. that we're going to go into a period of, you know, um, regression when it comes to drug policy reform. Mm. Uh, you know, we're very fortunate to have um, people like Fiona Patton, um, yep. who clearly, you know, is totally committed to drug policy reform. Um, there are others there, David Limbick and others who are, also very committed um but they do have to play a political game as well you know yeah they have to you know uh, walk, walk that tightrope so um so you know it's great that we have um, people like that who show leadership and we can work towards that but um i also think too that there's a strong at the moment in particular over the last 18 months to two years a that there's a significant level of complacency that's kind of coming in to people in terms of their, I guess, their willingness and their energy around um, social change. You know, I think obviously with COVID, people's, you know, um, you know, thoughts are almost all, all around what's happening in terms of, you know, COVID. So, mm. um, you know, uh, and I think it's impacting on a lot of social um, reform stuff, um, 100%. whether it's climate change or refugees or drug policy reform. So, you know, I think we need to find our way out of, um, way out of uh, this situation, obviously, and then look at ways in which we can progress um, drug policy reform um, and it, but there are some really good examples, you know, there, there's some great examples of what's happening, um, you know, particularly in, say, the ACT. Uh, the ACT has legalised cannabis use. Um, they've also introduced pill testing. Um, so I think that those um, landmark decisions really ensure that politicians can make those decisions comfortably without, you know, mm. sacrificing anything. And they're good. They're really good examples because they actually are working. Mm. So, and, and, you know, the sky hasn't fallen down like many people predict. Um, so, you know, we, we, we're still pretty optimistic about, you know, drug policy reform, but we, we still have to find um, a common voice and we still have to find a way in which we can project that common voice so that politicians will, will listen. Because it's pretty hard to get in there. It's pretty hard to, to get that foot in the door to you know, to get, to get people to listen and to be part of the, you know, to, um, I guess, for politicians to listen and to actually respond and, um, and understand and action what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So, so, so just on that, because again, I, I got a bit sidetracked because there's, there's a lot of interesting points to talk to you about, but if I, if I can just maybe just on that, then jump into the weeds a little bit and let's use, um, the North Richmond injecting facility um, as the example. So, so first, can you just, because you're at the forefront of it, just tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you're able to get that up and what that initiative is all about. And when I say how, you, how you're able to get it up, I don't mean that Craig <laughs> did the whole thing, but, yeah. you know, how, yeah. it all, how it all came about. Yeah, look, look in the end, uh, Jack, it did take... Um, uh, a lot of people were involved in that. You know, it wasn't just what the Yarra Track and Health Forum mm. um, did because um, I, you know, I would like to think and, and I, and I um, you know, I have to admit that, you know, it, it was a big effort, particularly by the community in the end, to, um, to yeah. get that, that um, site 
up and running. Um, but look, I don't want to take you back too far, but the, the area around North Richmond, uh, particularly the high-rise flats, that area, uh, Victoria Street, has been well known as a an open drug market for quite a long time, going oh. back to the 90s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is the thing I always laugh about, right, when I see the crazy media reporting and all yeah. that sort of stuff, is um. so when I was using it, like I remember... I never ran a heroin habit, but had lots of mates that did, but would use use heroin occasionally. Um, but we would go into North Richmond to kind of score drugs. And and at the start, it was like fucking intense. You know what I mean? Like you would get off at the at the station there and the dealers would be like lined up right mm-hmm. on Vic Street, right along the station under the tunnel. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you would just walk and then they'd always have these massive police raids and all yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. And, yeah. like, when I see people saying, like, oh, all the drug users congregating there, I think, what planet are you on? <laughs> Do you know how yeah. bad it was not so long ago there, you know? Yeah, so. yeah it was certainly a lot different there today. There's still a drug market, of course, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's a very different place to what it was like, say, seven, eight years ago and even beyond seven, eight years going back to, you know, late uh, 1990s. Um, So, you know, and I think what happened was, was that, you know, in the city, the CBD was running hot for such a long time. It was Russell Street, wasn't it? Yeah, Russell Street, yeah. yeah. So when when they had those huge crackdowns and the cameras went up and, you know, uh, the, the heroin started to dry up in the early 2000s, a lot of that market sort of ended up, being pushed down to North Richmond because it it found a place that it could survive and thrive. Like if mm. you know that area, you know what it's like. It's just this absolute, you know, if you were going to design a place where you'd have an open drug market, you design it like that. You know, <laughs> you, you've got you've got these thousands of people, many unemployed young men, you know, in the flats, you know, dealing, you've got this network, this labyrinth of alleyways and laneways. You've got trams, train, buses. You've got... You pretty know, central. Pretty central, exactly. You can walk there. You know, you can ride your bike, whatever. So, you know, so... Um, and then the, the, the locals started to recognise this in the mid-2000s that, you know, that they were pretty much fed up with, you know, particularly the traders were fed up with people using around the area. So... They said, well, why can't we have a, a, a like a facility that they got in Sydney? You know, why can't we have a, an injecting room? So, and there was a number of um, public meetings towards um, the end of the 2000s. And uh, it, it, it was earmarked originally for as an injecting room area, but that fell through, as I said earlier, um, towards the late 90s when the government got cold feet. But, uh, but the police were really engaged in that process in, in, you know, the late 2000s. And, you know, they were saying that they were finding it difficult to sort of manage the drug market. You know, it was sort of beyond their control. It was overwhelming. And uh, yeah. so the Yellow Drug and Health Forum commissioned the Burnett Institute to put up a position paper and looked at the evidence. And then, um, <clears throat> and, and basically the evidence was there to set up an injecting room. So in 2010, when I came in, um, I had that report and uh, we, you know, talked about it and because uh, I have an executive committee, I had an executive committee. There was a change of government at state level at that stage as Liberals came in. We 
sent that report and some other documentation to the Yarra City Council. And in May 2011, um, Yarra Council voted six to one in favour of, of a pilot for an injecting room. Of course, you can imagine the avalanche of press that started with, you know, the Herald Sun and everyone was all over it sort of thing. So, um, and, uh, you know, I remember I got interviewed by John Thane and, you know, and then um, Ted Bellew got, got interviewed and John Thane put it to him on air. He said, are you going to introduce an injecting room in you know, North Richmond? Because there's, there's evidence for it. And he looked at John Thane and he said, I don't think there's enough evidence. He didn't say no. He said, I don't think there's enough evidence. So we went back, did some more research. And by this time, we started to recognise that, hey, these overdoses are starting to really, really get worrying. So, mm-hmm. um, so by this stage, the police had decided that the way they were going to fix the problem, that they were going to saturate the area with more police, yeah. which yeah. pushed it across Victoria Street into Abbotsford. Yeah. So you've yeah. now got the well-heeled people of Abbotsford saying, Hang on, we've got a drug market on our side of the street now. <laughs> well, he'll appeal people of East Melbourne because it had jumped over Hoddle Street. You know, all the displacement was going on to other parts of you know that area. People in East Melbourne saying, "Hang on, we've got a drug market in East Melbourne. What's going on?" So you know, so um, I remember I used to go down, and and I don't know, like I I can still remember, and that's what I always say to people, right? Is that they used to do these. And that was probably towards the end when it wasn't even as bad. It, I, I remember when it cleared up a little bit, but when we first started going there, it was it was intense. But they would do they would do these like police sweeps where they would literally have like groups of four to five police, and there'd be like a hundred plus police just all down Victoria Street in groups yeah. of just like a wave of and that's what I always say to people, despite that happening, you'd get off the train. That didn't stop us like trying to score drugs. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what people don't understand. <laughs> no, I don't think people get that. They don't, they don't <laughs> understand that, you know, um, that type of approach by law enforcement has, if it has any impact, it's very, very short term. Yeah. And often, the, the, often the impact is quite detrimental, apart from displacing the issue to other parts um, of Richmond, which they will tell you is what they want to do. They mm. actually want to push that market out um, mm. and water it down, dilute it. Um, but as we know, like you, you arrest some dealers and, you know, you arrest one and there's two or three more lining up. Um, the price of heroin goes up, the purity goes down. So, you know, those that do commit crime to get their drugs, they're going to commit more crime, mm. you know. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's completely problematic, you know. Um, so, the only, the only justification they can use is that they want to restore some level of confidence in the community by that visible police presence. Mm. Um, and, you know, my experiences with, with the outcomes from that is, is that in the end, when the police leave, the traders and, and the residents turn around and say, look, the police were useless. They did nothing. You know, they just came <laughs> down here for five minutes and then moved on. So, you know, it ruins their reputation as well. So... You know, um, the forces of the market, the forces of the market will always be greater and overpower any resistance by police. So, um, so we have to look for new ways. So, um, so anyway, look to cut a long story short, the the, men, the momentum kept building. Um, there was a lot of publicity. You know, the media was all over it. 
there were you know there were there were people using people you know as you say dealing buying everywhere um you know it was happening in almost every laneway alleyway around that area um and to the point where the local residents became so fed up they formed their own action group um and it was victoria street drug solutions and a local person judy ryan was the head of that that group and and she championed their cause and um you know she basically took it upon herself to to get the community together to um to support an injecting room and um and looking in the end you know politics did play a part because you know she ran for the seat of richmond um at the last um election the last election yeah the last election 2018 and um was it 2018 hang on i think it was 2018 anyway i'm losing track of time i think yeah 20 i'm pretty sure it was 2018 yeah 2018 yeah. she ran for the seat for the reason party and she split the green vote and richard win the local member got back for, for labor so you know there was a bit of politics involved but they made the right decision they were always going to make that call once they realized that they had that had no other option and, and it gets frustrating now when you hear some of the residents in that area complaining about the injecting room mm. um, i look I, I i acknowledge that they there are you know issues around the injecting room but the fact is that overall there has been such a significant improvement in that area you know, Abbotsford, uh, North Richmond, West Richmond, you know, uh, West is such, it's so different from what it was. And people talk about the primary school, but the, the primary school, you know, it, the situation with the primary school has always been there. You know, they used to teach the kids how to avoid picking needles off the ground. Like this is a decade ago. <laughs> so it's nothing new. What they're complaining about is nothing new. The problem is, is that, it's just in their area yeah you know it's just it's just where they live and i also think too there's politics involved these there's certainly groups in the background pe pushing people's residence buttons around the issue because um i guess one thing which is and you would know this is that's become quite apparent is that politics now seems to be a case of um you know find finding a point of difference with yeah you know the other the opposition and exploiting that point of difference mm -hmm. you know whether it's right or wrong just just to get that publicity and to to um divide and conquer as far as you know the the, the politics is concerned which is you know I, I just think it's just a really bad reflection on our political situation at the moment yeah forget about having a strong um policy um yeah. stance yeah <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. Um, so yeah so i, I think you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the way in which the injecting room operates. They, they've done an amazing job. They're extremely busy. You know, they do, do so many great things for people who really are, I guess, the, you know, when you look at the number of people that use illicit drugs in Australia, there's thousands and thousands of people who use them unproblematically. They deal with the, 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 the people that have the most issues, you know, the, the, the complex um, cases, you know, um, chronic dependency, mental health, homelessness, you know, um, disadvantage, all that stuff. So they're dealing with that really sort of hardcore end. So, yeah. And it's an interesting for those just to quickly describe for those listening that aren't 
in in Melbourne. Probably if for those who listen in in Sydney, it's it's similar to the one in the cross. But um, that area as well, it's it's it really is like an interesting kind of experiment because it's a well, I shouldn't call it an experiment, a, a an interesting public health you know um, initiative, but it's because it's an area that you know, is quite, um, it does have, it's quite mixed, you know, it does have that, um, like the different levels of poverty that happen there because of the um, government housing and the high rises and stuff. But there's actually quite a lot of wealth around that area, you know, like oh, yeah. just in Richmond itself and Brunswick, yeah. and they're some of the most like prestigious suburbs yeah. in, in Melbourne. So yeah, it's a, it's quite a strange um, scenario and situation, you know, so. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, it's, it's like many inner city suburbs, I guess, that, you know, you have extremes, you know, in, in, in the, as you say, in wealth um, and social standing. And, you know, there's, um, there's some great examples of that, you know, in <clears throat> places like um, Richmond and Collingwood and Fitzroy. Um, and I've worked in, in that area, as I said, for, for over 10 years. And uh, historically, those um, places were very much working class you know, That's right. pretty, tough, pretty tough areas, um, but you know, with gentrification and um, you know, property values going up incredibly, it, it really is changing, changing completely. And um, and yeah, and, and you know, it's a, it's that old sort of situation where you know people move into a place like Fitzroy and Collingwood and Richmond because they want that sort of grungy, sort of earthy, sort of mix when they get there they realize they don't like the, the live bands and, and the drug use and uh you know the noise uh, so you know, <laughs> it, it's weird but, uh, but, but that's what it's like so yeah, yeah. it's funny and, and i have to say also too that one thing i do need to acknowledge is the work of the um era council who, who are absolutely amazing yeah. absolutely fantastic you know um during that whole process uh you know i i, I found it interesting throughout that nine years that when I started in that role and, and was quite vocal and, you know, I, I got to do a fair bit of media and, uh, you know, I ran a forum which, you know, a drug and health forum which, you know, was about local stakeholder engagement and uh, yep. you know, we were having all these conversations. But the more we talked about the injecting room and the more we highlighted that things weren't working, the police in particular dropped off. They dropped right out of it. Yeah, they became less engaging, uh, and I think, I think it was a recognition by them that the, the the publicity or the exposure of the drug market and how you know policing hadn't worked reflected badly on them, and they didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, so um, it was really um, disappointing for me not to have someone in policing to come out in support. And mm. say that they needed to adopt a different approach, and I think part of that is because, you know, again, it's this me this media thing about politicians and police not wanting to be seen to be soft on crime. Yeah, so that that that, ex that media exposure, they they really dread that. Mm. So we can't have these considered, informed, evidence-based conversations around drug policy reform. You know, invariably, mm -hmm. it's this kind of moral panic hysteria hysteria driven you know media recording which just polarizes the community and, and you know um only kind of perpetuates the same 
myths and the stigma and discrimination um, about people who use drugs in particular that that has happened for a long time and uh, you know it, it it's it sadly reflects um, on our community even though I'd like to think things are changing that you know people have still have these kind of black and white views about people's yeah. addiction you know about it's their choice you know um mm. they've made that choice you know um you know um and all that sort of you know really kind of i don't know what you call it um it's almost unforgiving it's almost like you know well you know there's no room to understand what you've done because you've made that decision you made that choice so you've got to bear the consequences it's you know, there's no compassion or understanding. You know, it's really awful what you hear from people about people who use drugs. Mm. Yeah. It's it's interesting, isn't it? It's just kind of, as you said, the last hundred years. It's just it's just kind of programming <laughs> that yeah. is just you know it's yeah. just so in, entrenched in the in the culture. So, yeah. I want to ask you sort of the the opposite position, like. How do you sort of talk to people, whether it would be residents in, in Richmond or, or, you know, the more common ones? And you're right, like I think the media does pump it up a little bit um, uh, and, and doesn't probably really reflect a lot of the sentiment that's in the public. But, you know, there's I've heard lots of um, uh, points from businesses where the new... Um, facilities proposed in the cbd there oh we don't want that here and all that sort of stuff how do you sort of talk to those people and and explain to them what it's about and also hear their concerns like do you, would you also acknowledge well maybe i'll put what i think as well i think one of the weaknesses that we have with like some of the drug um law reform is that people are passionate on on say our side of things and the way that we think about it and sort of get a bit too like idealistic with some of their thinking and and don't acknowledge probably some of the real practicalities of everyday life for people that it impacts in the community and and things like that. How, how do you talk to how do you talk to people about the benefits of it and and why it needs to change and all those sorts of things? Well, look, it, it's tough. I have to say um, for the very reasons I mentioned before because um, yeah. You know, you 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 deal with people, or you talk with people who, you know, um, believe that people have made a choice and should wear the consequences of that choice. So, why should we as a society, you know, um, give them anything that, you know, um, allows them to to continue doing what they're doing and disrupting, you know, our lives um, mm. to the detriment of other people in the community and and. You know, it, it, it's it's a tough it's a tough argument to counter that sort of you know view um, because mm. because you know people in, invariably will want to know what's in it for them. They want to know what the benefits for any proposed you know facility or program or new service will, will do for them. So you know, um, and and <clears throat> you know, I think you've got to say to people like that. Well. You know, we, we acknowledge that there's an existing issue and that our current approaches are working, that yeah. we do have a sense of responsibility and, and, and sense of compassion for people and we do want to get them into a facility that, you know, is non-judgmental and non-stigmatising and discriminating that they will willingly go to and then we can deal with and address the issues 
that that that, that person has apart from their, their drug use. So, you know, um, one one of the things, one of the factors that worked really well when we were talking about the injecting room in North Richmond was the fact that we actually got people to talk about the loss of their kids. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we had several parents who had lost um, kids in, in the area of North Richmond and Abbotsford to overdoses. Mm. You know, we, we, we also had to acknowledge that um, you know, people do make pretty harsh judgments around what lives are worth saving and what aren't worth saving. You know, we had, you know, people, you know, very, very sort of openly saying, well, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of those people are better off dead, you know, the way they live their lives. Um, and then you'd say, well, hang on, you know, there was someone who passed away not far from here whose parents are going to talk and they come from a, you know, middle class, you know, background in a eastern suburb who, who can't explain why their son or daughter decided to, you know, start using heroin or whatever. Um, and and mm. so I think, you know, you, you've got to have these long conversations with people. It's so it's so difficult to get into these long conversations though, Jack. It's, yeah. it, it's so, you know, everything seems to be such, you know, a, a short grab sort of fight <laughs> type statement these yeah. days. It, 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 it's having those longer conversations. That's why, you know, we ran those forums in, in North Richmond and, and Abbotsford and, you know, Richmond to, to get the people along that we thought weren't, going to be supportive because you know we we needed to discuss those things we need to to explain those things that you know we 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 have a range of of good reasons for introducing this facility Mm. Uh, you know and we're not saying we can make the drug issue go away and we're not saying that everything will be 100 okay afterwards but we are saying that things for a lot of people will be better Um, so you know I, i think I think it, it, it's part of conversations or, or part of, um, you know, uh, community discussions and awareness raising that uh, we, we, need, we need to keep having um, and we need to ensure that, you know, we, we look at every avenue we can or opportunities we can to have those conversations. And that, and that can include things like, uh, working with the people that are opposed to the facility and going and talking to them one-on-one, you know, having having coffee with them. Um, you now, I had coffee with pe- people um, in Victoria Street traders who were opposed to the injecting room. You know, um, <clears throat> we, we need to ensure that, you know, the media um, reports things in an accurate way about drugs and drug policy and, and why we're introducing these you know, these um, policies. Um, we need to have forums in the area where we're proposing to set up these programs to, to, to have an open and honest discussion about, you know, why, why this is going on. It, it's, it, it's a tough time to do that. I, ha- I have to acknowledge it. It's people are suffering, you know, that it's, you know, there are businesses that are, you know, feeling the full impact from COVID. Um, you know, introduce and to introduce this as well. Many of them will feel that they are being totally ignored and neglected. Mm. Um, and it is, as I said before, it's a, it's an opportunity for the media, some parts of the media, to give a focal point to another negative aspect 
of what's happening in politics. So, yeah. um, but I, I, I still think um, my, my, I'm very, very optimistic that once there's an announcement about the type of facility that's going to be introduced into the city, um, most people's, not only most people's um, fears and, uh, and, and concerns uh, about the facility will be, um, will be addressed, they will be very, very happy with the way it's going to, mm. you know, be set up mm. because I think it will be different than what, it will, it will be certainly different from what North Richmond is. So yeah. it won't be the same type of model. It'll be very yeah. different. So, yeah. so and, then, and this is important to, this is important to be aware of that, you know, not every um, facility like that is the same wherever you go. It has mm. to meet the local needs. It has to um, be, be built around the local environment, the local circumstances. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So, more broadly with with drug policy like if we were to um somehow magically make you uh a dictator in the <laughs> and uh you know transcend the the political lines between state and federal and you could combine it all together and have have control of the joystick and steer the ship in the right direction and get get Mr. Frydenberg and the various straight state treasurers to open up the, the safes with all the dollars in it. Like what, what would you do with drug policy? Like what would be the, what would be the solution? There's a whole conference in that question, Jack. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like we, that could call it the we could call it the joystick conference or something, yeah. you know, it's like that old song. If I ruled the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question and it takes a lot of thought, I guess, to know where to start with something like that. Um, my, my, first, um, my, my first thoughts are that we really do need to start at the beginning, you know, that, that, yeah. you know, that uh, <clears throat> a lot of what drives drug addiction, in particularly problematic sort of chronic levels of addiction, um, you know, th th those types of behaviours you know, and, and, and again, it's, you can't generalise, you can't, you know, every person has their own story. You know, there is, you know, I don't think I've ever, ever met any two people that are alike in terms of, you know, their journey in terms of their drug use. So everyone is different. So yeah. I think if you're going to talk in general terms, I would certainly look at ways in which you can ensure that, everyone that went through school had some level of success that mm -hmm. had, had um, really good mental health, you mm -hmm. know, um, really good mental health that had some um, sense of purpose and some sense of belonging, some sense of future, um, the, um, some sense of direction in terms of, you know, meaningful, um, meaningful, uh, not just employment, but, self-worth in life, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, that was a, is able to navigate, you know, systems, um, is able to sort of look at um, gaining either further education or some meaningful um, um, <coughs> work, um, you know, that, that I think that's really important. Breaking that poverty cycle, yeah. Um, 
you know, addressing mental health, early, early identification of kids at risk, um, you know, um, providing resources to schools to ensure that kids uh, are successful in school and um, are retained in school, all of that type of stuff. So that's, that's where... It's great that you immediately go there outside the drug space because, you know, that's what you commonly hear when people are at the pointy end is that, you know, their addiction isn't about their drugs. It's about all the other stuff and the drugs are a, an escape for that. So yeah. I think you're right, like to focus the policies or the direction on mm. not not the drug stuff initially. Yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the stuff that makes us healthy and well and, you know, uh, feeling like we're contributing as humans. Yep. Yeah. Feeling valued. Um, I, as I said, the mental health stuff is really important. The, you know, I've worked in the youth sector quite a bit, and, and I know that many of the young people that I've worked with have experienced significant levels of trauma as a as a child. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, and the perpetrators of that trauma um, can include people that they should trust. You know, mm -hmm. a, a person that you know has. Um, has some level of influence in their lives and which is a huge, you know, it has huge significant impacts on their mental health, mm -hmm. you know, their anxiety levels and, uh, and, and being able to control that anxiety and that trauma and that stress. You know, we talk about functional drug use and, and drugs provide a function for, for many of those young people who have been, tra been traumatized, mm -hmm. you know, and have, ongoing levels of anxiety, almost continuous levels of anxiety and stress and trauma in their lives. So, mm -hmm. you know, and then to put on another layer uh, on top of that around, um, you know, the stigma discrimination, the illicit nature of drugs that they use to self-medicate, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then to ostracise them from the community and they invariably end up with their peers or people, you know, that, the the only people that they kind of trust in the sense of the people that they use with so you know i'd like to break that cycle i'd like to mm. you know um i'm not sure you know how we would do it but certainly i, I would i would like to address those issues you know and, yeah. then, and then again there's many layers to that whether it's abuse from a, a loved one or family violence or you know neglect um that type of thing so yeah you're right i think a lot of it stems from that and i and i don't think it, it's it's not drug related early on it's it's certainly mental health you know mental health is a big issue so, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and and so if we're dealing with the imperfect system that we have now and and i'm just interested to get your thoughts on this because i know i know you're passionate about it um like where, where should we go from here you know there's the lots of different policy options it could could be investing more heavily in prevention um, more heavily in treatment or what we've already got or you know as some may see it the more radical approaches of decriminalizing or legalizing drugs you know which uh, i know where you where you're at but you know which where do you think that we need to go on that side of things well i guess that's the other end of the scale isn't it um and there's a lot in between so um you know i you know, being, being a former cop and, and working in, in the policing sector for quite a while, my views were that all illicit drug use was problematic drug use and, you know, it was invariably, um, 
people who were antisocial, um, you know, um, who were doing other criminal things in their lives. And, uh, you know, so, um, you know, I, I found out and I, and I listened and I read and, uh, you know, I looked into it more deeply and, and I started to, you know, the more I started to work in the sector and meet people and realise, you know, after going to conferences and having meetings with people and doing all this training and, and with external agencies and meeting all these people and thinking, oh, hang on, hang on, these aren't bad people. <laughs> you know, hang on, uh, yeah. where are all these, where are all these, we're all these bad people that you know that all are, uh, are um, these these so-called you know junkies that, that that are shooting up and destroying our community. And I thought, yeah, I need to find out more about this. And then, you know, after a while, I started to realise that you know the people that um you know I was um, engaging with and communicating with and having discussions and getting to know were actually really nice people. Um, and yeah. the fact that they used an illicit substance was really almost irrelevant you know it was just had something they happened to be doing and so many people out there use illicit substances and don't have a problem with their drug use so why should we be criminalizing all of those people potentially criminalizing all of those people mm. um when most of them actually are really good people and they don't they don't do anything bad or, or in fact a lot of them you mm. know um actually well-respected people in the community, as I found out tonight when I heard that one of our um, equestrian riders in the Olympics has, has tested positive for cocaine. <laughs> so, uh, my partner and I looked at each other and thought, yeah, there's a lot of money in horses. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't think the police will be knocking on their door, though. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the, the hypocrisy and the anomalies and, the, you know, the... the um, I suppose the inequities of way in which, the ways in which drug drug laws were enforced was something else which I sort of started to realise was, uh, you know, it, it, it's completely our send up. So, um, yeah. so anyway, these questions were buzzing around in my head and, and uh, I started to listen to people from the United States early in the 2000s uh, in the US um, a guy called Jack Cole and, and some other people who were uh, former cops and serving cops started to say, well, the war on drugs has failed. And, you know, the only way we're going to deal with this issue is to legalise all drugs. And yeah. at the time, I thought, no, that's a step too far. That's too radical. You know, I, yeah. I can't see us ever doing that. Um, and then I, then I started to talk with them and, and they started to explain why. And I thought, well, you know what, you're right, because it's not just about the impact of people using drugs and selling drugs that, that we need to think about. It's a whole broader aspects of the impact of illicit drugs and illicit drug policy. Mm. That, that included things like, you know, uh, the extortion, the corruption, you know, the, the use of, um, you know, drug money to do a whole range of other illegal things. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the violence associated with drug markets. Um, mm. And I thought, well, you know what, I reckon you're right. You know, one, I just quickly decided Jack Cole, who was in the Seattle, an undercover cop, started Leap. And he uh, started to work as a, you know, undercover working, um, infiltrating drug networks. But what they do often do is they start at 
you know, with drug user groups, people using drugs and kind of work their way up a bit. Yeah. And of course, um, he said after a while that uh, he used to come to work and he was, you know, he, he was sick and tired of the negative attitudes of police, you know, and the way they spoke about drug users. And he said that he realised after a while that he was really enjoying coming to work because he actually liked the company of the people who were using drugs. <laughs> so he said, well, at least they're honest. At least they, you know, they're honest. They just, they just want to use drugs, you know, and there's no hypocrisy or double standards or, you know, that you get within policing. Um, yeah. You know, they were just honest people wanting to use drugs. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and momentum has built since, since then, like, now you you've got a whole range of people, former, current police, uh, former serving police in the UK, the US. There's myself. There's Mick Palmer. There's New Zealand. There's Europe. You know, all saying now um, that you know the war on drugs has failed, and we need to change what we're doing. Neil Woods. Mm. I don't know whether anybody's had a chance to read some some of his books, but they're amazing. You know, yep. good cop, bad bad cop good cop bad drug sorry is an amazing read like you've got to read it to understand how the drug markets operate in the uk he was an undercover mm. cop for 17 years and the mm. stuff he talks about in terms of the way in which drug markets operate it's just horrendous absolutely horrendous yep. what they do. yeah and there's also these like wider impacts that you forget about about the the people that are in poverty overseas being extorted by you know cartels and stuff to harvest the drugs and you know all that sort of stuff it's yeah. it's yeah, well they run towns they run they run absolute you know towns in fact the cia decided a while ago that it was impossible to get rid of the cartels so they would allow them to continue running you know the towns that they run where they export they exploit the locals but they do keep a level of peace yeah so the worst situation <laughs> is when you get cartels the police are just, like we were saying before, an occupational hazard for most cartels. Yeah. Um, and but it's the cartels be the cartels when that's that's when the trouble starts. Yeah. So um so yeah so the CIA decided to let cartels. In fact, they've actually protected cartels. They've the CIA themselves have ensured that some cartels, the nice cartels, remain <laughs> the bad cartels. You know they 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 don't let them take over. It's bizarre, but it happens. Yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah. it's a mad world and no it, it's it's really interesting right like and i think it's one of the reasons why you know i wanted to do this podcast and i say this a bit for people that listen is because yeah like you were saying before there's just the shorthand headlines that you get in the paper and you don't actually get to understand these ideas in depth and 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 listen to and have a rational conversation um because i was the same as you like i the first time i heard legalization of drugs i think i even might have had a media conference which is a whole nother story where i said no like to legalize drug you know that's too radical um but like slowly over time when i've just been exposed to longer form and i and i feel like i've been lucky to be exposed to different people and have longer form conversations and understand and you know sort of um de-indoctrine myself from some yeah. different stuff and you know like and you start to go yeah fuck it makes sense you know what i mean like it's it's and then you look at the history of alcohol and all that sort of stuff and you go yeah, that's right. 
Well, drug prohibition was such a failure that, you know, and people say, well, it was alcohol. But if you look at the way in which the drug, the um, alcohol uh, producers change their approach during prohibition, it's almost identical to the way in which the illicit drug market works today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's astonishing how the similarities, you know, in terms of the way in which, you know, um, the illicit drug market, the illicit, um, sorry, alcohol market worked back in the um, 1920s. Mm, I mm. guess the big question that that people ask is, okay, what would it look like? What, you know, what, That's right. What's, 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 what's going to happen? If you Can you go to the IGA and buy heroin? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, um, hopefully not. Um, uh, I don't think heroin is the sort of drug that we should be um, allowing people to buy. Um, yeah. you know, I think there's a strong case um, to say, well, okay. And, and there's an organisation in the UK called Transform. Yep. They've, done some really, they've written some really good policy options around legalisation. And if people ever get a chance to read their stuff, it, it's really well set out and it, it's... It's quite logical what they say. You 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 can't just have an open market, um, mm. you know. And you do have to regulate and control um, the availability of some drugs, very strict with some, and not so strict with others. You know, like if if you were going to look at sort of a less strict regime, you look at cannabis and you look at um, ecstasy, because pure MDMA in itself. You know, um, no drug is harmless. I would never say no. I would never say a drug is harmless. Every drug has a potential risk, but certainly, you know, given that we live in a drug-taking society, most people do take drugs, and most people will take them relatively safely. Then MDMA um, can be used quite safely. In fact, it, it it it's used therapeutically and has been used therapeutically, mm. and has actually benefits quite good benefits therapeutically and also um, recreationally and socially, you know, so and most people will do the right thing. The problem with MDMA and ecstasy is that it's made in an illicit market. Mm. People are exploiting that by not only producing um, ecstasy, which isn't MDMA, it's a concoction, a cocktail of other drugs, but um, there's, uh, you know, there's also people producing this stuff in laboratories and other places, which, you know, they're using all sorts of stuff to put in, put into ecstasy. But so anyway, so I think there's that end of the market. And then there's the other end of the market, which to me is about tighter restrictions and controls on drugs. Um, and that would include things like heroin and methamphetamine, um, where you would, where you would have a fairly strict regime and control around accessing them. So, um, and, and I think, again, we need to be careful with that because, We've seen, particularly in the United States, and I and I always get a bit of a shudder when I think in the United States because you know they have this kind of view that everything should be in the free market. But if you look at our um, oxycodone and oxycontin and the way in which they mm. were heavily promoted, heavily promoted by the pharmaceutical companies to doctors, and the way in which that has backfired and caused so many overdoses, mm. they're the sorts of things we need to avoid. We need to avoid that happening. Um, yeah. So there are good examples in Switzerland and other parts of Europe and now Canada around prescribing of particularly heroin. So I think, you know, that approach we could seriously look at. Um, mm. So, so yeah, so I, I think, you know, we, 
and and in the United States now, there's um, you know there, there's good examples of new developments around psychedelics, which seem to be going well. Um, you know, I, I think overall, you know, um, <coughs> policy options we we can have a rational discussion openly in the community about policy options around um, legal approaches towards access of those substances. I think I think it's time to have those conversations. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I can't see as a as a like a reasonably well, you know, informed community putting aside what the media does, you know, why we can't have those conversations without without being immediately labelled and pigeonholed. Um, and As radical lefties. Radical left, <laughs> radical left or radical right, because there are people on the right who um, believe in this stuff. There are people on the right who say, yes, I agree, we should be taxing it as well mm. and, and making a lot of money at it because there's a lot of, a lot of states in the US are making a lot of money out of cannabis. Oh, it's big. Taxation. It's Fucking yeah. drinks, uh, edibles, gut, like yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy. Yep. yep. Without all of the, you know, as I said, the doom and gloom that was forecast by people, you know, 10 years ago. So, yeah. yeah. And I think like just to just to finish up, and it's the it's the major kind of learning curve that I've that I've had is is that you know, like people, I think it's probably one of the number one message that people can kind of take away or help me to understand is that, you know, that there's a difference between addiction and drug use and it's kind of a sliding scale or it can be. And, and, you know, there's a lot of debate about what addiction actually is, but most people you talk to, like we were saying before, when they're talking about addiction, it's usually due to, other factors like trauma or negative belief systems or emotional patterns or behavioral patterns, whatever it is that have formulated over time. And drugs are actually just a manifestation of that to escape or soothe or self-medicate or whatever that is, whether the person knows that they're doing that or not doing that. But then there's this whole other sliding spectrum of people that do use drugs. And I know that people still think that's controversial to say, but it's the truth that don't have addiction issues, but they do fall onto that some, some level of risk. And and that's where these drug policies come in to kind of acknowledge that and say, Hey, people actually do this regardless. And we need to change the fabric and the structure around it so that people aren't getting penalized and actually pushed more towards that addiction, um, side of the spectrum because of the yeah. drug policies that we have <laughs> yeah yeah look i think look i think you're absolutely right um jack and i still think look access is one aspect of the policy i think you know True. we still need to ensure that you know when people do are able to access you know different substances then we still have policies that ensure that others are safe as a result of True. The drug use. So, you know, we do that with alcohol and tobacco um, at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we do that reasonably well, you know, like particularly with driving and, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, um, that, you know th- those sort of consequences, um, you know, um, alcohol policy, licensing policy, all of that stuff price controls price yeah. control exactly um 
prohibiting homemade alcohol, uh, ensuring mm. that if a person's going to smoke, they do in a safe smoking area, um, that type of stuff. So I think I think with the other drugs, we'd have to have similar policies as well. You know, we'd we'd have to ensure that you know the impact of um, people's drug use isn't significant on other people. You know, I yeah. think that that's really important. So you know, we we want to be careful about you know the way in which we approach. Um, Particularly, you know, we, we certainly wouldn't want to go down the United States line around allowing, you know, marketing and, and promotion, um, you know, and, and the availability, you know, accessing would, would need to be carefully, um, carefully considered as well. I was in Canada when they legalised um, cannabis. Yeah. Um, and, and um, yeah, I, I was in uh, Toronto and... Uh, you know, I was speaking to the to the local police and they were saying, well, it's kind of been de facto decriminalised for quite a while because right. you, know, you can go and buy it anyway under the counter and we really don't enforce it. <laughs> uh, but we do ensure that people don't drive under the influence. So, yeah. you know, that's, that was their view. So, um, and the other remarks that police said was that, you know, overall we don't have problems with people's behaviour when they've been consuming cannabis, we don't like people when they've been drinking. So, <laughs> so please do make those judgment calls. They do, you know, they do know, you know, um, what are what are more risky um, drugs and more risky situations um, than other situations. So yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. It's so, so interesting. I could ask you a million more questions. We'll have to have you back on. If people want to get, um, more involved in in the overall conversation or, or trying to make an impact mm. with drug policy, where would you suggest that they go and have a look or where can they find well, things well, that well, you're involved in? Oh, sorry. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. Sorry. No, um, that's all right. That's all right. I'm a board member of Harm Reduction Australia, so you can always contact me through Harm Reduction Australia. So just look up the website and uh, you can contact me through through there. So, awesome, awesome. Um, we'll we'll it, chuck it in the show notes. Yeah, you, you don't, you know, you don't have to, um, uh, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to follow me. So I'm thinking of a life from a, a line from the life of Brian. Um, you, you don't have to follow me. You, you know, you you can think for yourselves. But um, you um, yeah, you you can just just you know um, if you're if you're concerned about it, if you're passionate about it, then then there are lots of different groups out there. Like there's Students for Sensible Drug Policy, there's Drug Policy Australia, there's Harm Reduction Australia. Um, you know, there are avenues to get involved. And, mm. uh, you know, there are cannabis law reform groups. Um, so there, there's, some, there's stuff happening. You know, there, there, there are a lot of people out there who, um, you know, who, who are involved in this stuff. And, and if you wanted to do something on your own, certainly... You know, write write to your local politician, write a letter to the to the newspaper. Um, you know, get involved through service clubs. Um, invite invite people like myself and others to go along and talk to service organisations, lions clubs, um, Rotary, that type of thing. Uh, and and you know, maybe even talk to your local council about having a forum. So, you know, there's different things that you, you can look at to get involved for sure. And I'm happy for people to contact me directly and have a chat, you know, as far as that's concerned. So, 
Awesome. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, Greg. It's a fascinating you, um, conversation. And uh, yeah, we definitely will have to have you back because I got a few more. I got a few more questions. Cool. Great. Thank you. Have a good night, mate. Appreciate See ya. Cheers. Bye. Had the homies